Welcome to Behind the Line, where we pull back the curtain on the challenges facing first responders and frontline workers. The work you do is unique, and so are the stresses that go with it. Join me as we tackle key issues to reduce risks for burnout, and as we work to support you in doing the job you love without sacrificing being the kind of person you want to be. Hey there, and welcome back to Behind the Line. I'm your host, Lindsay Foss. If you're new to Behind the Line, what you should know about me is that I'm a clinical counselor specializing in trauma therapy. And after over a decade working with first responders and frontline workers around issues like burnout, compassion fatigue, PTSD, and related OSIs, I have become a passionate wellness advocate and educator for those who sacrifice so much for our communities out on the front lines. Behind the Line is a place for us to talk about the real-life, behind-the-scenes challenges facing you on the front lines. I created this podcast with the hope of bringing easy access to skills for wellness, allowing you to find greater sustainability both on the job and off. As you know, if you've listened last week, we are diving into a series for September on alternative therapy interventions when talk therapy isn't working. Last week, we covered why talk therapy isn't always effective, and I gave a bit of an intro into the series. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by a friend, colleague, and past coworker, Claire Weiss who is sharing with us about psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. Claire is a registered clinical counselor with over 10 years of clinical experience providing psychotherapy to couples, families, and individuals. She's a graduate of the Trinity Western Master's Counseling Program, and she gratefully lives and works on the traditional and unceded territories of the Kwantlen, Keitsi, and Matsky peoples. For the past six years, Claire has been on a personal and professional journey of exploration into the therapeutic use and efficacy of psychedelics, including MDMA, ketamine, psilocybin, ayahuasca, and wachuma. She's currently a Theracil Provisional Associate, a MindLeap Integration Specialist, a member of the Psychedelic Support Network, and a grateful alumni member of the Roots to Thrive program. She's had the privilege of teaching graduate courses on addictions counseling and psychedelic psychotherapy at Trinity Western University and currently runs a busy private practice just down the street from me in Fort Langley, BC. Since 2020, the core of Claire's private practice has focused on psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy and psychedelic integration therapy. She's especially passionate about supporting parents, frontline workers, and members of marginalized populations. This makes her a relative newcomer in the field of psychedelic medicine, an approach that has existed in the modern world for over 70 years and for thousands of years in Indigenous communities around the world. Claire's approach is deeply relational, attachment-oriented, and trauma-focused. She works from an internal family systems perspective, integrating mindful self-compassion, EMDR, OEI, both of which we'll be talking about soon, and various somatic and embodiment practices. Over the course of her career, Claire has worked in a variety of settings, which include private practice, not-for-profit, and private residential treatment, both in Canada and abroad. Claire shares that she's deeply grateful to the colleagues, mentors, and Indigenous teachers who have guided her on this journey, and to the many who have walked before her, often at great personal and professional risk, to make this form of healing accessible to others. I will add to her bio that I have personally and professionally known Claire for many years, and she's among the most gifted therapists I have had the opportunity to know and work alongside. I respect her and her work deeply, and I so value her willingness to come on and share about an area of work that is not often shared about so openly. Let's jump in. Well, thank you so much, Claire, for coming. It's super good to have you. I'm really excited to get to chat with you today on this show. I have had you in mind for a while, and I'm really excited about having the excuse to have this conversation with you today. But before we dive into all the things, why don't you give us a little bit of your background and share a little bit about who you are and the work that you do? 
Sure. Um, well, my name's Claire, obviously. Um, I'm a registered clinical counselor. I've been in private practice for just over 10 years now. Um, I have worked in a variety of different agencies and organizations from academic institutions to not-for-profits to um, residential addiction treatment centers. Um, but throughout the whole time have, have also been working in private practice. And um, initially the focus of my practice was really on addictions, but very quickly I recognized that the deeper issue is trauma and yeah. attachment. And so very early in my career, I started to focus on those issues and, um, and develop, developing expertise in that area. And so for, for the last 10 years, that's been my passion and my focus. And um, for a lot of my career, I was working um, with a lot of conventional psychotherapy uh, methods. And now in the last couple of years, I'm focusing on psychedelic assisted therapy, which is a totally different animal. And I'm super excited to be here totally. to talk about it and to yeah. share with people uh, well, everything I know about it. I'm so excited because I, I shared this in last week's episode. I did a little intro, um, but this kind of happened because we had a guest on the show uh, back late spring, early summer um, with a military background. She was with the Canadian Armed Forces and she brought up the topic of um, psychedelics and how that's been such a significant part of her healing story um, and just a general story of recovery from PTSD and related kinds of pieces. And the minute she said it, I had this like kick in the butt kind of experience where I was like, oh shoot, how have we not talked about this yet? Um, and I think I emailed you that same day to say, hey, I really want to do this because I I can't believe that in the almost two years we've had this podcast, we've never talked about kind of the other side of things or like the less traditional version of therapy which is funny to me because I also do a less traditional form of therapy, like OEI and EMDR are kind of on the outset of that as well. Mm -hmm. And so I just sat there going like, how have we not done this yet? And I'm so excited that I know you. I'm so excited that I have someone that I can call on to say, hey, how about let's talk about this thing that I know isn't necessarily super widely talked about in spheres that some of our audience may have heard of before or been like closely connected to what it means and looks like. So I'm excited to get into the nitty gritty with you about it. Yeah. Yeah, me too. And, you know, uh, one thing I want to offer is that it actually makes a lot of sense why it might not have come to mind because mm -hmm. for decades, I mean, this is a type of therapy that involves the use of substances that have been not just stigmatized, but also criminalized. And Absolutely. so in our cultural awareness, there is this sort of default assumption that it's not a thing, you know, mm -hmm. or, you know, it kind of gets categorized as bad. And while that's starting to shift a bit, it's just very, very slow to come into like our collective yeah. awareness. So it, it, you know, it makes a lot of sense why it might not have been the first thing <laughs> to come to mind. I mean, it does make a lot of sense why it might not have been the first thing. Although I also, I, I didn't share this, that I know you because you worked here with us for a handful of years. And mm -hmm. so I know you and I know that this is a piece that, that you shared with me about. And so I'm kind of surprised I didn't think of it sooner. I feel like it should. <laughs> Um, but let's talk about what psychedelic assisted therapy means. Tell me more about that approach and how it's different than conventional treatment models. Hmm. Well, it's different in many ways. Um, psychedelic assisted therapy describes a process that involves the use of a psychedelic substance, um, of which there are a few, in combination with um, a therapeutic process. So it's in combination with counseling and what we would think of as like traditional psychotherapy. Okay. Um, but we bring them together in a certain way. And when we talk about psychedelic assisted therapy, we're talking about um, a very high dose use of a psychedelic substance. So a lot of people these days are familiar with microdosing. Um, not the same thing. Microdosing is a different application or different use of psychedelics. Um, and so that's sort of probably the most simple way to define it. High dose of a psychedelic in combination with a specific therapeutic protocol that unfolds over time or over a series of sessions. 
Amazing. That's a really great kind of opener. And I know we're going to get into kind of the more meat and potatoes of how that looks and what it looks like and what people could expect or imagine about it. Um, But before we do that, I really want to hear about what got you interested in this approach to begin with, because I think that's always a fascinating piece with non-conventional approaches to really anything, not just therapy, but there's something that tends to call us into it that takes us away from kind of the beaten path that would usually be a lot easier to follow. So what is it that got you interested in this and what do you value most about it? Yeah. And you use the word like call, like we get called into it. And that was, that really um, describes what my experience was. I really got called into it. I wasn't looking for it. It just sort of found me. Um, Alongside my sort of journey as a therapist, I've also been on a personal journey of healing Mm -hmm. and recovery. So um, my childhood involved quite a lot of complex trauma. And the impact of that for me was um, a long history of anxiety, depression, chronic pain, chronic fatigue. And so, you know, while I was working on, um, you know, being a therapist and guiding other people on their journey of healing. I was also sort of going through my own process. And as a counselor, I was finding that there's a certain subset of people who wouldn't respond well to conventional therapy or who would Mm -hmm. respond to a certain point and then just kind of plateau. And I was also one of those people. So I've been in therapy for many, many years. Um, Addiction is a part of my history. So um, residential recovery, 12-step recovery, lots of lots of like one-on-one therapy, group therapy, like you name it, I kind of tried it. I really sort of like exhausted all the options available within the like, I guess, conventional therapy model, including things like OEI and EMDR and um, neurotherapy and things like that. But really was, had reached kind of a plateau where I was very high functioning, you know, doing Mm -hmm. well in my career, Um, married, you know, had a family, um, but inwardly inside was still really struggling um, in a lot of really important ways, socially and just relationally. And then in 2016, I had a miscarriage, which was, um, well, it was devastating and it kind of shattered my sense of faith and my understanding of how things work in the world. And, um, it just brought me to, um, such a painful place. Um, then in my search to find something, some new avenue of healing, some new form of therapy that I hadn't already tried, I kind of, um, I would say serendipitously found my way to an ayahuasca ceremony and it wasn't on purpose. I found a retreat, um, that, looked very therapeutically sound and grounded in a lot of the approaches that I valued. They didn't advertise anything about psychedelics, but in the intake process, they shared with me that that was part of um, the retreat experience. And so Mm -hmm. as a person um, deeply involved in abstinence-based 12-step recovery at that time, Mm -hmm. the idea that a psychedelic could be healing was a bit jarring for me. So Um, but I was also desperate. And so I did the research that I could and learned that Gabor Mate, who is, um, very, uh, influential, you know, his, his writings and his research and and stuff had been very influential for me in my career. And, um, I learned that he was uh, an advocate for the use of psychedelics like ayahuasca in treating various conditions, addiction in particular. And so, knowing that he was in support of that and reading what I could access around the research, I just made the decision to try it. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was completely life-changing for me, totally transformational, Um, very, very healing um, around grief and loss, gave me a new sense of faith and something that I could believe in that felt real to me, Mm -hmm. Um, alleviated a lot of the anxiety and depression that I've been feeling at the time. And um, my son's father, who was my partner at the time, was so struck by um, the change in me that he made the decision to go to the same retreat and have Mm -hmm. his own experience. And um, 
he had a long history of struggling with um, clinical depression and ADHD and, um, and had a similar experience to me in that it was totally transformational. He mm-hmm. was able to go off all the meds that he was taking. And the two of us together just sort of um, went on this journey of learning more about that particular plant medicine, learning more about psychedelics. Um, and it brought so much healing into our life and our relationship. And, um, and then when my son was born in 2018, it became quite challenging to travel. And so um, I was looking for something, uh, a way of working with a psychedelic that was more accessible, closer to home. Um, And that led me to the research on psilocybin, otherwise known as magic mushrooms. And um, the research was substantial. There is a vast amount of research on psilocybin dating back to even the 50s and the 60s. and the research was very compelling. And, and I just kind of decided in at that point, like, this is something I want to explore professionally. Um, mm-hmm. And it, I think having my experiences with psychedelics had really changed my perspective on healing and what it can look like and how it can happen and made me realize that what I was doing with clients in my office was really just a small sliver of what could be possible. And... Um, so, yeah, so I, I connected with a therapist out here in the Fraser Valley who um, had been a, a counselor for over 30 years, trauma therapist, very well respected in the community, mm-hmm. um, former pastor, actually, um, named Dave Phillips. Um, and he is uh, he's in the media quite a lot. He speaks a lot about psychedelics and um, works with Theracil as well. And he took me on in kind of a mentorship capacity and Mm. trained me in how to um he trained me in the protocol that they use in the clinical trials and as part of that um took me through a number of my own personal experiences with Mm. uh, a few different psychedelics and um the rest is history it didn't take long (laughs) at that point for me to really deeply know that this work was for me and this is um how it meant to work with clients and so that's what I do now that's amazing. It sounds like really solid buy-in. Yeah. Yeah. That's right? a really like, good way of putting it. How yeah. else do you get bought into something if not by having your own really deeply meaningful experience with it? And yeah. then how much more does it feel compelling to help from that place when we can kind of bear witness to the this works? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And works cool. better than I could have ever even imagined. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I bought in. It's, it's, yes. I, I mean, I feel like it. you're going to get some phone calls after this. Uh, <laughs> I so, would welcome okay. them. Yeah. <laughs> Talk to me about the advantages to this approach for those who are working on the front lines. Like, you know, this population, you know what they're struggling with. So many of the people who are listening are navigating things like burnout, depression, anxiety, PTSD, other kinds of occupational stress injuries, as well as just like life also happens to us and work isn't the only thing that's traumatic for us. It's also really often true that the people who tend to go into these kinds of jobs come from histories where they have their own traumatic backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Um, and so given that that's kind of the the group of people listening in, what do you find to be the advantages of this approach for that kind of population, those kinds of clinical concerns? Hmm. Well, a few different things come to mind. One is that we, we know from the research that psilocybin is um, incredibly effective uh, at healing depression and not just like mm-hmm. managing symptoms, but actually healing it in a way that... Um, you know, people like six months after their treatment, like just no longer meet the criteria for depression. And so um, we, we just, we know that psychedelics align very well with a lot of the conditions that like frontline workers and first responders experience. Mm -hmm. Um, We also know from the research that MDMA is, is likely the very best treatment that we have for treating PTSD. Mm -hmm. The outcomes um, are, not just promising, but overwhelmingly positive Um, and kind of so far beyond 
like in terms of effectiveness so far beyond the other approaches that we have for treating PTSD. Mm. So there's like, there's good alignment there between like the things that people on the front line struggle with and the things that psychedelics are known from the research yeah. to be good at treating. Another advantage is that um, the, o- the overall process is much shorter. It's much shorter than conventional yeah. therapy. Conventional therapy can sometimes be a long-term process and mm-hmm. incremental and slow. Um, and so, you know, for people who are passionate about what they do and, you know, and want to be like doing what they do, yeah. having a shorter um, road to recovery can be very attractive. Um, mm-hmm. I would say it's, it's, it's helpful in that way as well. Um yeah. Yeah, I'd say those would probably be sort of the biggest advantages, like in terms of this particular sure. population. Well, and let's dive into that a little bit further. Like practically, um, what would a session look like? What would someone expect a session to look like? How long is a session? How frequently do they happen? How many sessions does it generally take to experience some relief? Like some of those pieces that you're right, like it it is briefer often than talk therapy tends to be or more conventional therapeutic in, um, interventions tend to be. And so what what's kind of the like general, I know super generalization, I know none of this will apply to a single case, but if you were to kind of lay that on me as a very theoretical, what would you say? Yeah. So timeline, like number of sessions, session, like all that sort of thing. Um, the best way to answer that is to kind of describe the process. So it begin, it begins with a consultation okay. um, where we first of all assess whether or not this would be a safe treatment approach um, and kind of go through some screening questions. Then um, once a person, you know, once, once, once we know that it's likely to be safe and likely to be effective, given the conditions that a person wants to work on, then um, the next step is um, to enter into this three-phase process. So, so okay. and this sort of describes the protocols that they use in the clinical trials as well. They typically follow a three-phase process. First phase is preparation. With me, that involves um, three one-on-one counseling sessions where we focus on really specific topics. So one, a thorough history of the conditions that they want to treat, um, family of origin history. I really want to know what their childhood was like, family dynamics, um, how they learned to get their needs met in their family. Um, and we also do a thorough trauma history too. And all of that is so that I, I can know what might come up in their mm-hmm. active session so that I can be prepared to support them with that. And in the preparation phase, we also talk a lot about intentions because your experience when you are on a high dose of a psychedelic is very much shaped by the intentions that you have going into it. So if you go into an experience and your intention is to just have a great time and, you know, see the universe or whatever, then your experience will be shaped according to that. If you go into it because you can't remember the last time you felt joy and you just want to be able to access the sense of joy again in your life, then your experience will be really shaped by that. And Mm -hmm. so in the preparation phase, we put a lot of attention on set and setting, set being your mindset going into the experience and setting means everything about where you'll be doing it, who will be there when you're doing it mm-hmm. and the relationship yeah. you have with the people who will be holding space for you. And then the um, middle phase is the active session. So that is a six hour day okay. um, where you take a very high dose of a psychedelic in the presence of two practitioners. I always work mm-hmm. with a partner. Um, and you are encouraged to stay internal. So this is very different than a recreational experience where you might, you know, be enjoying the environment and the other people Mm -hmm. in your environment. This is very internal. And so um, the way that we do that is by offering eye shades and noise-canceling headphones through which you listen to a very specially curated playlist that's made Mm -hmm. um, specifically for this type of therapy. It's music that is meant to guide your experience. And, um, and you go on a journey and what happens in that journey is very different for everyone. 
Um, it would be impossible to describe what a typical journey is like because it's just very, um, very unique. Um, but usually by about the five hour mark, people are coming back to themselves, you know, feeling grounded, more lucid. And after about six hours, they're ready to go back home um, into their life. So that's the middle phase. And then the the third phase is the integration phase, which also involves three one-on-one counseling sessions with me, sometimes more. Mm-hmm. And we now know that the integration phase is as important as the active session. We used to think the active session was the main event. Everything's going to happen on that day. Yeah. You're going to get insights. You're going to be transformed. And, and while that can be true, it is so important to be engaged in some type of integration process so that you can sustain those changes. Hmm. And also there's so much more that can come to the surface um, in the weeks and even months that follow an active session. There's yeah. still a lot of work to be done. You need to actually do something with the insights and awareness and information that you come away with. So that's the third hmm. phase. That's kind okay. of one round. Okay. And um Something important to know is in the clinical trials, people will typically go through three rounds. So they will have three active sessions, and that's what's connected to the results that we see in the research. Sure. Having said that, most of the clients that I've worked with have been very, very satisfied with one active session. And um, now the longer I do this work, some of them are coming back and saying, there's more I want to work on here. You know, I'm seeing a deeper layer here that I want to work through. But for the majority of people, one session gave them a substantial amount of relief, clarity, um, and satisfaction given, you know, what their intentions yeah. were. And it's very individual. Wow. Fair. <laughs> that does sound amazing. I have to say that personally, in my own experience, and I feel like this is probably going to be what others think and feel too. I am a very significant control freak. Like I like feeling in control of things. So I'm so curious what that feels like to not be in complete control, to not, to feel so not in yourself for that period of time. And do you find that that's like a barrier for some people to choose to do something like this? Yeah, it absolutely is a barrier. And there's a bit of a paradox there. So being in control is um, often a way that we learn to survive difficult experiences. Totally. It makes us feel safe. And so we cling to it. The irony here, I don't know if irony is the right word, is that often the ways that we learn to be in control are also the very same ways, the very same things that limit our healing. Yeah. You know, so like as an example, a person might, um, uh, you know, isolate because they feel safer in isolation. But we also know that we need to be in relationship in order to heal. So it can Mm -hmm. feel safer to be on one's own, but it also kind of limits our capacity for healing. Um, That's just one example that came to mind. And so it is, it, it is a, um, there is a process in deciding to do this therapy and, and Mm -hmm. often people wrestle with it for a while. Yeah. Um, And there is a lot of fear and hesitation around letting go of control. And that's why it's so, so important to be informed about the process, Mm -hmm. to know the person you're thinking of working with very well, to have asked all the questions you need to ask, to feel confident in their training, in their experience, you know, and that you feel very comfortable and safe with them because it is an experience of surrendering control. Mm -hmm. But it's also um, like some people will describe it as like being out of myself or not myself. I think you might have even used wording like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. One way to think of it, though, is that you are actually coming into total contact with the core mm-hmm. of who you are beneath all the layers of defenses and all the ways you needed to adapt to cope in the world, in yeah. your family. You know, And so... In one way, you are letting go of control, but in another way, you are um, um, you're creating this space for a, 
another part of you to show up another very wise deeply intuitive part of you to show up and move you towards Mm. healing Mm -hmm. it's a good answer Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's a good answer i mean i think it's always this funny thing right because even as i ask the question like i'm fully aware of the fact that the control that I I tend to enjoy feeling, and I'm sure others who tend to be, you know, high-level professionals who are, you know, they're the type A personalities who get stuff done and who are in positions of authority. And there's a reason they gravitate towards those roles. Yeah. It's because they also tend to share some of that liking to be in control thing. But I'm fully aware that most of the control that I imagine I feel is an illusion, right? Like, <laughs> it's not real control. It's not, like, actual control of anything. It's just this belief that to be in a certain way keeps control. Yeah. And so I can appreciate that. Yeah. To, to some extent to be relieved of the constraints of that would probably allow for a way deeper sense of contact with a self that doesn't feel so encumbered by those illusions. Mm -hmm. And yet it also just feels like that feels makes me timid a little bit, all honesty. I wonder if you think that aspects of that are largely dictated by some of the like criminalization of some of these substances and pieces like that, or do you think that those hesitations would still exist regardless? Like if they were, if this was like wholeheartedly embraced by government and the therapeutic community, do you think that that would shift? Hmm. Um, I think the, the ways we've been conditioned to think about psychedelics definitely doesn't help and definitely feeds into some of that fear. You know, how could it not? But I do actually think the deeper concern and the deeper hesitation is connected to this sense that you have had to be in control in order to survive. And there may have been a a time in life where that was actually legitimately true that mm-hmm. being in control, being hypervigilant, you know, being whatever version of control yeah. one has, that it actually did serve to protect you. Yeah. The problem is that that gets generalized over time to every other situation in places where we don't necessarily need to be in control in order to be safe. Um, yeah. And it gets kind of out of balance. So I think the deeper thing is, is the, the deeper issue is probably just that you know, we've learned to be in con- in control, or at least to believe that we're in control is a way of feeling safe. But I love yeah. what you said about how that is largely an illusion, because 100%. despite our best efforts to stay in control, it's like, you know, we're still coming to therapy, we're still not feeling good. It's like, we're alive, it's kept us alive, but it hasn't kept us happy. Yeah. It hasn't, you know, um, left us feeling deeply fulfilled and content and satisfied and connected in our life, you know, so it's falling short in some ways. 100%. Well, and it's kind of like in all things, right? Like I often say in sessions, um, you know, there's this piece where we like, don't even think about getting in our car and driving somewhere and expecting that we're going to get there safely. We assume that we control the variables that dictate that until we're in a car accident and suddenly we recognize that all of that was false and then we're dealing with the shattered assumptions that believed for so long i was safe right um i know we actually recently had the experience my husband and kids were in a car accident this summer um and everyone is fine and it was fine but the really interesting thing about it was uh it started with my husband going straight down a highway um with a green light and someone turned left in front of him without enough space to clear so he slapped on the brakes and didn't hit that guy. And he was like, my vigilance saved the day. And then the next person behind that guy also turned left and hit my husband and kids. Wow. And so he had just had this, he's talks about, I had this like moment of I saved us. And then two seconds later, he gets smoked by someone else. Mm-hmm. He's like, but I saved us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I did the thing, but it still wasn't enough. It still didn't protect and save me in the ways that I could, should, would have hoped it to, right? And so just that piece of like, even where we think or have aspects of control, it's still so limited in terms of what it actually does to give us full protection from all the possible things that could happen and go wrong. And it feels like just such an easy symbol of life, right? Like 
it feels like life. I can think that I, you know, controlled this thing to deflect off of one bad thing happening, but then it turns around and that hits me in a different way mm-hmm. out of left field and I couldn't have expected it. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The illusion of control is so compelling and it's like a security blanket that even despite all of that, and, and there's a part of of all of us that knows exactly what you said to be true, you know, and yet still it is so hard to let go of that. And so, you know, when people approach me and they're wanting to explore this as an option, I just feel like such deep uh, empathy and admiration for their courage and even considering it because that is a big deal. That is a big totally. deal. Absolutely, mm-hmm. it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you mentioned that the whole process starts with this screening kind of piece, um, and it sounds like that's a really important part in kind of dictating the trajectory of how things go and where they go. And it makes me curious um, around contraindications for this approach. So who are people where that screening process would be determined that this is actually not safe or not in the client's best interest, not likely to be effective for the concerns that they're coming with? Mm -hmm. So there's slightly different contraindications, like they can change slightly depending on which psychedelic um, we're talking about. So with psilocybin, and actually with, with most of them, um, a history, like a, re- a current diagnosis or a history of diagnosis with bipolar disorder, um, okay. borderline personality disorder, um, any history of psychosis, you know, schizophrenia, mm-hmm. anything like that would be a contraindication. There's something about those conditions that when you add a psychedelic, it can actually amplify and worsen symptoms or okay. trigger relapses. So we just want to be yeah. really careful about that. Uh, for psilocybin uh, and MDMA, being on an SSRI or, um, you know, any kind of antidepressant, anti-anxiety medication and lots of other um, prescription medicines can be a contraindication, not because there's a risk of toxicity or interaction, mainly because they use the same receptor sites. So oh. they're already like sort of blocking this, the place yeah. where the psilocybin wants to attach. And so you end up having a blunted effect and it's just not as effective. Yeah. Um, having said that, though, there is more contemporary research coming out that is suggesting that antidepressants are not as much of an issue as we thought they were. So um, it seems now like um, for Ciprolax in particular, that people can have a psilocybin experience on Ciprolax with perhaps just a slightly higher dose and that they can still experience the benefit of the medicine. So that's changing a little bit too. And there's some more research coming out on um, psychedelic therapy for people with bipolar as well. Um, suggesting that it can be helpful too. So things are kind of shifting as we learn more and as more research is done, it's, you know, it's kind of opening up a little bit, but as things stand right now, those are still considered contraindications. Also, um, uncontrolled cardiovascular issues or blood pressure, that would be a contraindication too. Um, If a person has blood pressure issues that are being well-managed with medications, that's not a problem. Hmm. Okay. Um, I'm curious about the piece around borderline personality disorder specifically, because we know that that diagnosis is so closely hand in hand with complex trauma. Um, and I know you mentioned that for complex trauma, this can be a really helpful piece. And so where does that, like, where does that line cross into, we're now moving into borderline personality disorder traits where this is going to be problematic or not as effective or helpful, um, versus complex trauma where we're maybe not quite into the borderline personality disordered space. Like mm-hmm. what's the difference there? Still to be determined. It is like okay. kind of a gray area and there isn't like a real clear line where yeah. that would happen. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Then the main, the main, uh, I'll see if I can sort of just dis- describe the concern that's related to that sure. is that Psychedelics can really amplify attachment dynamics and um, a lot. And so for a person with um, 
I mean, in part, part of the issue with borderline personality disorder is like the self-harm and suicidality and things like that. And if it's going to amplify symptoms, we just really want to make sure that that person is going to be safe and well supported. And currently a lot of psychedelic therapy is being done in an underground context. Right. Um, And so we just want to be like extra, extra careful um, that we're not, you know, that we're not exposing people who are especially vulnerable to risks. And when those attachment dynamics come up, they can get projected onto the practitioner and there needs to be a really, really good container of safety to be able to hold and manage all of that. And in an underground context, that sometimes just is not available. Um, as, as these therapies become sort of more accessible, Um, And they're delivered in um, environments where there's multidisciplinary teams and lots of option for ongoing therapeutic support, then I think it's it's very likely that people Mm -hmm. with those conditions, including borderline, will be able to access it more readily. Okay. Yeah, that's Mm -hmm. helpful to know. Mm -hmm. Um, I know you've shared along the way in our conversation so far. Um, kind of pieces here and there about research that kind of backs what this is at this stage in time. And I recognize that while the research seems vast in some ways, it's also limited in others because of this underground piece and criminalization piece and all of these factors that kind of contribute at a systems-based level. So I want to kind of give a, a window in for those because so many of those who listen are very like medical model and law enforcement and like all of the very rigid things in some ways or rigid is maybe the wrong word but like rule abiding and all of those pieces and so give us some of the um kind of research background that helps give a sense of like clarity around really the legitimacy that this holds behind the line is sponsored by beating the breaking point Beating the Breaking Point is a seven-part online training program designed specifically for first responders and frontline workers and tailored to fill the gaps in your training to support resilience and sustainability. Whether you're new to the work and wanting to cultivate tools to prevent burnout, compassion fatigue, and related concerns, or you are deep into your years on the job and have gone a few rounds with burnout and other mental health challenges, This program offers the foundational pieces you need to support personal and professional wellness for the long haul. You are a helper. You love your work and you sacrifice a lot. Investing in you and your sustainability is the best gift you can give yourself and those who lean on you. We make this program as risk-free as possible by offering a limited money back guarantee to ensure that it's a fit for you. If you enjoy Behind the Line, you are going to love this program. Google Beating the Breaking Point Lindsay and find everything you need to get started or use the link in the show notes. Now back to the episode. I mean, the research on psilocybin dates back to the 50s and 60s. Um, There was an enormous amount of research being done on psilocybin for alcoholism, depression, Um, smoking cessation might be a little bit more recent, but it's like, this is like 70 years of research, you know, thousands and thousands of papers. Part of the challenge is that a lot of it went completely underground with the war on drugs when psilocybin was criminalized and LSD was criminalized. LSD, there's like a, there's a, a, a phenomenal amount of research supporting the use of LSD for alcoholism and depression as well. Interestingly, just a fun side note that I like to share is um, Bill Wilson, who's the founder of AA, mm-hmm. um, who, who wrote the 12 Steps of Alcoholics, um, had his own LSD experience, you know, mm-hmm. very early on, um, you know, in the formation of AA. And so um, that's something that a lot of people in 12 Step Program aren't really aware of, but it's been around for a long time. MDMA. Mm-hmm. Um, also has been around for a long time. I think the research on MDMA sort of dates back to the 70s. But again, it really got shut down, you know, when it was criminalized um, and um, started to be framed more as like sort of a party drug or whatever. And so a lot of the research went underground, but it isn't hard to um, find the resources. Lots of great um 
places where the research is summarized and lots of, so MAPS Canada, for, for instance, the Multidisciplinary okay. Association for Psychedelic Study, hope I got that right. Okay. Um, they are, uh, they originally started down in the States. They're sort of a hub for research, um, especially around MDMA. We also have MAPS Canada, which is a different organization, but similar um, okay. mission. Um, and on their websites, you can find a wealth of research on mm -hmm. a variety of different psychedelic substances. Um, and I'll, I'll um, include some resources for you too, which you can share with your listeners to help mm -hmm. them access that too. When we consider the amount of research that is necessary to, to sort of uh, label and approach evidence-based, there is, there's actually more than enough, um, mm -hmm research on um, on these substances to consider them evidence-based but the fact that they're still illegal is a huge block to really looking at them in that way um, yeah. yeah so I mean I feel like that's a really easy lead into my next question which is why is this approach not used more conventionally and I feel like that's probably one of the very solid answers to that one yeah. um and maybe there's others, I don't know. So feel free to fill in that gap. But um, in addition to that, are there any kind of considerations for how to access this approach? Yeah, so it is really tricky right now. The, the Really the only legal ways that one can access um, psilocybin-assisted therapy and MDMA-assisted therapy in Canada is by uh, being a participant in a clinical trial. Okay. Or um, by getting a Section 56 exemption from Health Canada. The okay. Section 56 exemption is um, essentially an exemption from um, the legal issues around the use of psilocybin. Health Canada has been like very cautious in who they provide exemptions for. And so far, it's only been for those who currently have a terminal diagnosis of a terminal illness or who have in the past. Okay. Um, and it is quite a process to go through applying for that. And um, sure. there's an organization in Canada called Theracil. Mm -hmm. um, and that's basically all they do is they support people in applying to Health Canada for um, mm -hmm. exemptions. Um, but it is a slow process and many people um, don't get exemptions. So mm -hmm. it's challenging. Most people are accessing this therapy in an underground context right now, okay. um, yeah. which is unfortunate um, and yeah. can be risky mm -hmm. and not something I would just like overtly recommend, but mm -hmm. there are people who are desperate um, yeah. and willing to to try it. And so, yeah, I would say that's probably the biggest limitation right now. And the mm -hmm. stigma around psychedelic drugs, you know, the, yeah. there's this deeply embedded belief that they um, are dangerous, can make you go crazy, mm -hmm. um, and are just bad, you know, and, and really potentially harmful. And while there are some risks compared to um, the all the other drugs that we use that are prescribed or available, um, you know, like alcohol or things like that, psychedelic psilocybin and LSD especially are on like the very low, low end of that list. Mm. It's very, very few harms associated with these medicines in particular compared to other drugs. Hmm. Yeah. Well, and I know when we spoke with um, Kelsey Sharon, who was the one who kind of got this ball rolling, um, she was talking about some of the research, um, that's happening with veterans, um, and military personnel and kind of hopes and beliefs that, um, there will be change fairly rapidly in terms of how this becomes available, at least to kind of first response professionals initially, um, mm -hmm. and then theoretically would roll out to more general populations from there. I'm curious, just out of curiosity for, for what you know and, and how you're connected to that community, if there's, mm -hmm. if that's kind of your impression as well. Yeah. Psilocybin will be available first. Um, it, in part because likely it will be just decriminalized and available, legally available in dispensaries, just like cannabis is, okay. um, 
that can be problematic because then theoretically anyone could take them, use them, or present themselves as a practitioner in this type of therapy. So it kind of opens us up to a whole host of problems. Good and some hard. Yeah. Yeah. It would be better if it was sort of decriminalized and regulated by the government, Mm -hmm. then there would be sort of more control over who had access to it and what they were using it for. Um, But um, it will be one way or another, it will likely be more accessible sooner than MDMA. Mm-hmm. MDMA, I, I have heard um, that we are probably still a year out from it being legally accessible. And when it is, it will be in a medical context. It will need to be prescribed and administered by a medical professional or by someone who's sort of licensed or um, mm-hmm. permitted to use the substance. Um Ketamine, I do want to mention something about ketamine. So ketamine is not, it gets sort of included in the conversation about psychedelics. Um, You can have psychedelic experiences when you're um, given ketamine, but it is a slightly different class of drug. It's legally accessible in Canada right now. Um, And it is absolutely not safe to access that underground. I don't even know where that would be available, but because there are some real um, potential health risks and typically you need to have a physician present um, for that reason. But ketamine is available legally above ground in Canada. There's an amazing program called Roots to Thrive. Mm -hmm. Um, It used to be a research program out of, I think, Vancouver Island University and the Island Health Authority and maybe connected with UBC too, but now they're just their own legitimate not-for-profit And they have a really beautiful 12-week group therapy model that involves um, ketamine, uh, high-dose ketamine experiences at three points Mm -hmm. throughout. Um, That's something that a person can access totally legally and above ground. You just have to go to their website and apply Mm -hmm. and go through a screening process. Um, Yeah, I kind of forgot what the question was. (laughs) Am I still on topic? Uh, The initial question was, why is this approach not used more conventionally? And are there any considerations for accessing, which is, I think, where we were at. Um, And I guess I'm curious, are there any other kinds of pieces in terms of considerations for accessing that we should know about? Um, And if not, I think my very last question is around how can people learn more? Um, and are there some resources we can direct people to? I know you mentioned that you would send me some pieces that I can link to, which I'll do in the show notes um, yes. around where people can find some of the research that you mentioned, um, yes. some of the like kind of hub places that can summarize some of that. But is there anything else that people should kind of be aware of or look into or any kind of final thoughts that you would want people to know? Mm-hmm. Well, one thing to know I think, I don't know where this fits into all the questions, but one thing to know is that there are psilocybin dispensaries up and running currently online and in storefronts in Vancouver. So Mm -hmm. psilocybin is widely available and um, generally like very safe. Like no one has anything to gain by sort of tainting or polluting psilocybin with anything else. It's a mushroom, you know, it's Mm -hmm. not like a, you know, a drug that comes in a powder form that you could cut with other things to whatever. It's just a mushroom and they grow all over the place too. So Mm -hmm. um, to know that they are accessible and that at this point they are in a way kind of unofficially decriminalized in that law enforcement is not pursuing charges for possession for psilocybin because there's far more um, dangerous drugs that are of concern right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's just like kind of just something to know. I would never just like recommend that a person go and get their own psilocybin and try to do a trip on their own because um, it can be an incredibly intense and frightening experience. So you want to make sure that you have like good clinical support with it. Mm-hmm. Um But just offering that as a way of sort of illustrating what a weird kind of gray area this is existing in right now. They're both like not legal, but also widely available. And so, you know, what do we do with that? Um, um, In terms of accessing more resources on like the research. So one of the best resources is Michael Pollan's book called How to Change Your Mind. Michael Pollan is a very well-known journalist. He's 
written books on a number of different topics. Um, food, the coffee, I think was one of them, but he wrote a book within the last couple of years um, focusing on psychedelics. And he, it is the currently the best sort of overview and exploration of the history of psychedelics, the research on psychedelics, um, how they're used, you know, and on the actual experience of being on a psychedelic. Um, mm -hmm. It's just a beautifully written, very comprehensive book. I used it as one of the texts when I taught a course on this topic at Trinity, actually, because it is just okay. like so rich. And yeah. lucky for us, they've now made a Netflix um, docuseries on that book. Yes. So um, you can watch it. Yeah. yeah. If you don't have time to read a book that's this thick, you can just sit on your couch totally. and you can learn all about the history of psychedelics. And and I think this first um, season focuses on LSD, psilocybin, uh, mescaline, and I believe MDMA um, is very, very well done. And so I would highly recommend your listeners watch that Amazing. first yeah. yeah I'm also available you know if um your listeners want to reach out to me um you know to ask questions or to learn more about how they can access it or if they qualify mm -hmm. for you know legal access or anything like that I'm happy sure. to, to answer those that's questions awesome too. we'll make sure that we post some of your information there as well then I wonder too I know that it's been a while since I think the first documentary came out, but there was a documentary that Gabor Mate had done um, yeah. around ayahuasca that was really, really well done. Mm. Um, it feels like that was quite some time ago now, but I know that he had also come out with a series more recently. I haven't watched that one yet, but I'm curious if you're familiar with it um, mm. and if those would maybe be helpful resources to add or I'm not sure. Yeah, there's two, there's a movie called Dosed. Um, yeah. That is very popular, um, quite um, highly acclaimed. I never actually saw it. And they recently came out with Dose 2. Right. Um, I was supposed to go to that, but had COVID. So I missed it, unfortunately. But it is highly recommended. I'm not entirely sure where one can access those to watch them. Um, okay. But I'll have um, to see if I can do some digging and be able to post something to connect to that. Yeah, I recommend them. Yeah, ayahuasca is um, a whole topic unto itself. You know, ayahuasca mm. is not a substance that's administered in a therapeutic setting. It's it's offered in more of a, a group ceremonial type of setting, um, typically facilitated by people who are um, apprenticed or trained in the shamanic traditions of the indigenous cultures that make ayahuasca. And so it's yeah. a totally different um, type of experience. Molecularly has some similarities to psilocybin, so the high can feel similar, but it's a whole other, a whole mm -hmm. other thing. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I appreciate that context. I know the original documentary, and I, again, I feel like it was like maybe 2010 2011-ish mm -hmm. that I recall that coming out and it was broadcast over CBC I'm pretty sure I'll have to mm -hmm. see if I can dig it up somewhere mm -hmm. um and it was Gabor Mate going down somewhere in South America I don't remember where um and participating in an ayahuasca ceremony um so certainly kind of a different piece I know that dosed since then is kind of more of the pieces that are more contemporary and used mm -hmm. here far more often um but maybe kind of interesting to pick at the different variations and ways that yeah. that can look. Mm -hmm. yeah. One yeah. of the most sort of beautiful things that I learned from having experiences with ayahuasca is this awareness that in Western culture, we often look at drugs as tools that we can use to get an effect that we want, like mm -hmm. we use them. But yeah. in indigenous cultures, it's really more about relationship, about having a relationship with a plant and the spirit even that they believe is sort of connected to that plant. Mm. And that's, I think, something that I want to um, sort of offer here and to the people who are listening to this is one way of looking at a psychedelic experience is that you are entering into relationship with a medicine or a substance or another way of looking at it at that is a deeper part of yourself Mm -hmm. And you're going to learn something in this relationship and you're going to have an experience in relationship with this thing, whatever it is. 
and to sort of step away from our our typical way of looking at drugs and looking at you know therapy um, mm-hmm. and to consider this more of like a, a journey of relationship that you enter into um, mm-hmm. yeah yeah hmm. you're right that it like that feels very outside of convention in terms of culturally how we think about mm-hmm. so much about treating right like we identify that there's a problem and then we fix the problem with treatments that work to fix the problem. Whereas this is a far more like, we don't necessarily know the who, what, or how of how this is going to create transformation, but through the relational process that is inherent to it, Mm -hmm. change happens. Mm -hmm. Right. And so like, it's in some ways more aligned to just like a holistic approach, Mm -hmm. but also feels less, um, structured in terms of how our brains tend to think about what it looks like to do medicine, mm-hmm. to do recovery, to do treatment, which mm-hmm. in our culture has been very like protocoled and mm-hmm. rigid and structured and very like, if you're not ticking these boxes, then you're not, you're not doing it right. Or you're not getting the yeah. outcome and then it doesn't count for much. Yeah. It sounds like this has a, a much more kind of like free flowing, but then also more effective and efficient kind of piece to it which is interesting yeah yeah there's definitely a protocol piece to the um you know psychedelic assisted psychotherapy model that is a that is a departure from how it's used more in a ceremonial or ritualistic context a little bit different yeah um Yeah. Another way of looking at this, and again, I don't really know where this fits in, but it kind of feels like an important concept to share is that like, it's, it's important to know that like the psychedelics themselves are not the medicine. They're not doing the healing. What the psychedelic does is it puts your brain and your body and your nervous system into a certain state that allows you to access your own inner healing intelligence. And that concept Mm -hmm. of Like we have within us um, an inner healing intelligence that naturally moves us in the direction of growth and healing when the right conditions are present. Just like when you cut your hand, you know, as long as you keep it clean and dry, your body knows how to heal. We don't have to give it instructions or anything. And our psyche is the same way. Mm. Given the right conditions, we we can heal naturally. And so all psychedelics Mm. do is they clear away the noise, the obstacles, the things that get in the way of our own inner capacity to heal. And I think fundamentally, that's what we do as therapists, too. You know, we're not, we're not healing our clients, we're not fixing them. People sometimes think we will, but that's not how it works. (laughs) That's not how it works. We're doing it. (laughs) We're just just pointing them in to the part of them that knows how to heal, you know, and, and, and psychedelics do that. Um, that's kind of what psychedelics do too, in a, in a totally different way. Removing some of those barriers that maybe Mm -hmm. trip us up. Right. Mm -hmm. I think that's a beautiful way of putting it. And I think that sounds very accurate to Mm -hmm. any exposure I've had to anyone who has done any form of psychedelic assisted therapy. So I super appreciate that. It's kind of like this beautiful wrap up piece to what we've been talking about. Thanks Claire. Yeah, so welcome. Such a pleasure. I appreciate. Yeah, I so appreciate your time today. I know that it was tricky trying to find a way to coordinate our schedules, and I am so thankful that we were able to fight through to find a time because this was worth every minute. Oh, I'm so glad. Well, thank you so much for having me. I want to extend one more big thank you to Claire. I so appreciate knowing amazing people and professionals like Claire and value their willingness to join me here to share so that those of you struggling and needing support might find a path to meaningful change that really serves you well. Following this interview, Claire sent along a list of resources for those interested in learning more, and you can find these in the show notes wherever you're listening. As we wrap up today, I want to remind you about our listener feedback survey. We're asking your feedback to help shape the future of Behind the Line, to ensure that it's meeting your needs and covering topics that matter most to you. You can find the survey link in the show notes as well as on my social media pages. If you complete the survey before September 30th, you'll be entered to win a $50 Amazon gift card as our thanks to you. Also, please reach out and connect if you have any questions or feedback. 
You know I love hearing from you and shaping this podcast to echo your needs and interests. I love hearing about what you're working on and how you're using what we talk about on the show. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Lindsay A. Foss, where you can follow me or tag me, or you can email me at support at thrive-life.ca. I am grateful that many of you are keen to share about Behind the Line and spread the word to others on the front lines. Thank you so much for sharing with those you know. Know that we can be found online on our website, on most major podcast platforms, as well as on YouTube. Click subscribe to get alerts about our latest episodes, or subscribe to our email list to hear more from me about all the exciting things we have going on and coming up. You'll find all the details you need in the show notes, along with links to our free Beating the Breaking Point Indicators Checklist and Triage Guide, which is there to help facilitate self-assessing burnout and related concerns. We make all of this available to you because the work you do matters, but way more than that, you matter, and we want to make sure you have what you need to keep up the good work at work, as well as in your real life outside of work. So use it and share it, and until next time, stay safe.